Welcome back to the JMS Podcast. Buenos dias. It is 2016. And yes, it's a good start. I had a, I had a show last night. I had a music show. I had a great time. Performed uh, songs since uh, I started playing music about a year ago. I was like, wow. One year of like taking like guitar playing seriously. And I've, I'm totally amazed that I've managed to pull these songs on top of that, big thank you to my f- musician friends who like inspired me and supported me and helped me in any way they can. Shout out to Will, David, uh, I'm not saying their last names, but well, I should, I guess. Uh, Will Lineberry from Lineberry Studios, um, David Fournier, Israel Sanchez, Martin Murillo, Patricia Faith for performing, Christine DeCloyne for performing. Uh, great, great crowd. Had a good time. I had a, had a, a surprise I had a friend from Boston come by and totally came out of the blue and I'm glad he was there and stuff so 2016 is looking all right N- not too shabby not too shabby I gotta admit you know uh, a couple resolutions uh, I try to complain less you know I'm trying to really uh, take life as it is uh, and I think part of it is just me getting older you know it's my, my birthday's coming up soon and it's like I feel like a lot more mellow now I'm not I'm still new, you know, tense in certain situations and such, but uh, I do see some improvement or growth. I, I guess you know, I've I'm handling uh, shit in life a little better. Uh, still got a lot, of, a lot to work on. Um, I think my I think I have a bit of a temperament. I got to work on too, I guess. So there you go. But we got a, a lot of projects coming 2016, including with this podcast uh, coming up. I am officially working on a website yes i am uh to for this podcast to consolidate everything and it's the first time i've made a website and i'm making it on my own so i really don't know what i'm doing so i hope you guys enjoy uh when it comes out and such and you're probably asking jorge you live in silicon valley why don't you just hire someone to uh to make this website for you i'm like i would except i'm a student so i'm on a student budget which means I'm gonna no budget. I have no money. Jesus Christ! I don't. I barely have money to keep this podcast alive. But hopefully, that's all gonna change soon. Hopefully, with this website. Uh, today's guest, I had comedian Sandra Risser on. She is amazing. She is such a sweetheart. I've never got to meet her before, but I'm glad I met her today. Uh, I had a great chat with her. I learned a lot from her. When I met Sandra. Just looking into her eyes, you can see just so much charm and wisdom there. And sure enough, she came, she sat down, and we talked it out. And she has such an interesting backstory to her. And it's amazing and quite inspirational. She's like, a, I didn't bother to ask, but she she's, well, she says she's over 60 for sure. And still doing comedy and, and performing in big rooms at, at that age. I'm totally amazed, honestly. More power to you, Sandra. She is amazing, and I'm looking forward to seeing her a lot more now that we've met, now that there's a connection. It was a great pleasure having her on on this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast, whether it is on SoundCloud, iTunes, or any other pod hosting sites. And uh, check out the Facebook page. Like it, like it, like it. Check out the Instagram page and the Twitter page. So, yeah. If you're not an, uh, a frequent listener, welcome. My name is Jorge M. Sanchez. I'm going to do this because it's a whole new year. 
So I think I have to reintroduce myself every year. And yeah, uh, another big goal uh, for 2016 is figure out what to do with this squeaky desk I got. It's, I'm not sure you can't. I'm not sure if you can hear it. No, probably not right now. But it's been squeaky. I have no piece of shit desk. I, I, I think I got myself a new IKEA. I gotta make a trip to IKEA once my paycheck comes around. Because this desk is fucking killing me. It is killing me. See, again, I'm complaining too much. I, I'm trying to change that. Jesus, this fucking desk just already ruined my, my New Year resolution. Thanks, desk. And so on. But yeah. And I might just... Uh, I don't know how to put this. 2015 was a great and hard year for me. So much have happened. So much great stuff have happened and so much bad stuff have happened. And I will always look back and see those lessons I've made, you know. And these are lessons about my my mortality, lessons about other people's mortality, lessons about um, heartbreak, lessons about, you know, falling in love again. Uh, And anything, you know, it's also, you know, the music I mentioned already, the comedy, the writing. And that's the thing. It's like I feel like I'm actually writing more than than previous other years, because I don't know. I just it's just that point. I'm like, all right, uh, you're not getting any younger, Jorge. And pretty soon you're graduating in one more se- semester. And what are you gonna do after that semester? God knows what. I'd have no fucking idea. I don't know. Probably unemployed for a while. I don't know. I might hang out St. James Park. I don't know. And it's that that fear of not knowing what's going to happen that's driving me to, to, to do everything. You know, it's like, all right, one of the things has to work. One of these things has to really work. Wow, I think I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting uh, too emotional because 2015 was a crazy fucking year. But I'm glad I have, could not have gotten it without you guys, those who are listening and those who support this podcast, thank you very much for listening in. And without much further ado, let's have a chat with uh, Sandra Risser. Too much, too many. <laughs> uh, you should see my house between my husband and I. <laughs> oh yeah, what does your husband do? Uh, he just retired this year too. He's um, computer nerd. Is that his career? A computer nerd? Yeah. <laughs> Performance and. Uh, That's basically it, performance. Performance. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the performance but, of a computer. Like he improves 
the speed yeah. and such major like systems major systems Ma- major so not systems. so not for personalized computers it's no. for big industrial computers yeah great were you into that as well yeah i was uh that computer nerd for many 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 years worked at started out uh with control data then went to the airlines ended up at bank of america Wow. Where my career ended when they laid me off. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Is that where you started comedy? No. After that, I went to uh, a travel agency. So I owned a travel agency for a while. That was comedy in itself. Um, this is before internet or is this during internet? Like This is where you had to personally meet someone to make some travel adjustments as opposed to now where everything is online? Well, there are still, uh, although I don't have it anymore, but a good travel agent is still worth their weight in gold, depending on what you're doing. If you're you're going from here to New York, Mm -hmm. you can look up all the places you can look up hotels you can compare you can do all that yourself but in the case of we went to Australia this past fall we got a local to help us plan our trip because they know what you want to see where to go which are the good B&B so you don't make mistakes and that's where travel agents come in. How long have you been doing that? I don't do that anymore. I haven't done that for years. Well, how long have you been doing it when you were doing uh, it? Oh, I did it for about uh, at a brick and mortar travel agency for about three, four years, and then worked out of my home for another maybe three, four years. That's yeah. fascinating. How does it work? Like, do do you usually like, do you already determine by when you meet someone in person the personality where they would like to be? You know, like like I'm not sure if that works. What I I lost the question. Yeah, I lost myself in that question as well. <laughs> I guess I don't know. I, I see like you know because you, you're in some ways you're choosing the fate of these people on this trip, and you always want to make sure they're having a good good trip wherever they're going. Oh, well, you ask people what they want, what they're looking for. Uh, Do they want, you know, five-star places, one-star places? How much do they want to spend? What types of activities they like to do? Uh, Yeah, you you just find out about them because it's... Even when I was working out of my home, I talked to them on the phone. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of the people we worked with in Australia, we traded emails for six, eight months before we made the final plans. So you do find that out about the people, what they want to do. It's actually a fun thing to do. And what were some of the highlights for a, a travel agent when it comes on that line of work 
fam trips, of course, where <laughs> I got discount rates. I spent 14 days in China. Wow. Uh, for about half the price that it would normally take. Did you stay in mainland China or were you along the coast? Mainline China. It was a tour. Beijing? Beijing, Shanghai, um, I can't pronounce all the places. The highlight of that trip was a five-day cruise up the Yangtze, and it was before the Three Gorges Dam was built. Right. So I got to see things that are now underwater. It, it was pretty spectacular. It, it was the end of summer, right before the rainy season began. Uh-huh. So when you were on the Yangtze, it's at its lowest, and you're looking up at these big, high cliffs, and then you see boat docks above your head. And that's how much the river would rise in the wintertime during the rainy season. You saw stairs. I mean, it has to have been a mile or more that in the summertime, these people climbed down to get to their boats. Mm -hmm. It was just absolutely amazing. It's it's amazing how much human development, you know, like the audacity to 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 construct those things. Yes. And make a living off that. Yes. It's amazing. Yeah. Where else have you been in the world? I'm curious now. I pretty much all throughout Europe. I've been to Israel, Morocco, Turkey. I'm trying to think where else. Alaska. <laughs> Alaska could be its own country in some way. Alaska was beautiful. But out of the country, Ireland, Great Britain, Scotland, Amsterdam. And all great experiences? I think traveling is one of the greatest things a person can do. Now, not all of that did I do while I was a travel agent. I had taken two trips to Europe when I was young in my 20s. And my sister lived in England. So once I began working for the airlines, I used to go visit her for a long weekend. Mm-hmm. I would just fly out on a Friday night, come back late Sunday on the red eye, and then go right to work. Of course, I was young enough I could stay up 24 hours. <laughs> you had the energy. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was a lot of fun. I still, well, obviously, I still like traveling. Was there a particular place that drawn to you more? Not really. Hmm. I can't, except maybe the Middle East. 
I can't think of any place I don't want to go. I've been through a lot of Central and South America, been to Mexico. I like them all. I like meeting the people. I like, you know, there's just nothing I don't like about traveling. There are a couple places I'm not sure I'd want to go back. Like? Jamaica. Oh my God, what happened there? They were two in your face. Oh. You landed in Kingston? Um, trying to think where we were. Can't even remember. But there were a couple of places where it, they just are too much, you know, buy this, get this, and you can't, you can't window shop, you can't do anything right. without them dragging you in. You can't really travel in peace like that. No. So that I don't like. I love taking cruises. I think one place I want to go, unfortunately my husband doesn't, so I'm not sure I'll get there, is I want to go to Antarctica. Wow. Yeah. Well, what's the interest there? Is it the penguins? Yeah. <laughs> and and just to have been there. Is, is that the last continent you have yet to, to land on? Well, I have not been to Iceland. I haven't been to Greenland. Oh. Uh, Iceland is supposed to be fabulous. They have hot springs all around it. So, and uh, I always pronounce the name of the capital wrong. Oh, Reykjavik? Yeah, Reykjavik, something like that, yeah. Yeah. It is supposed to be an absolutely wonderful place to go. I, Iceland, I feel, is one of those countries, where it, it's a phenomenon because... Iceland, they have great musicians. It's just a small community, really. They have great music coming out of Iceland. At the same time, these people are living alongside volcanic, uh, you know, land in peace. And like, like once in a while, a volcano will, you know, blow and people will go, that's just another day here. Right. That's amazing to me. I can't live in those conditions. Well, I can't live because it gets really cold in the wintertime. (laughs) But, as I said, they have hot springs, and the people, you know, they just go, and they go to the hot springs, and they soak, and and it's supposed to be beautiful. Mm. So, yes, I would like to go there. I haven't spent much time in the Baltics, so I'd like to spend some time there, look more. Again, I don't think my husband particularly wants to go to Sarajevo with those places, but I would like to go. Does he have roots there? Do you have roots there? My family is, uh, my brother just told me, well, I said we were Russian-Polish border, but actually we're Belarus. That's that's interesting, Belarus. Yeah. I'm a Belaruski. <laughs> <laughs> and have you been there? No. Ah. Belarus, they, they got amazing uh, traditional music as well. Uh, yes. They, it, it's it's a good mix of Russia meets a bit of the Middle East, right? Yeah. It's right up there. Yeah. But I've always loved 
Russian violin music. Oh yes. It is it just kind of tears at your heart. And my father played the violin and we he never have to say that. My father played the violin for years. He never played it except to show us kids how. Oh. Because when he was in college, he had an orchestra. They were all studying to be doctors, lawyers, whatever you studied back then. After their graduation, yes. Dad took them all to Europe. They played their way over on a ship to earn their passage. They played around Europe on the way back, and this is when the cars were open and they had the canvas sides and the slats, because we're talking 1920, something like that. Is this here in the US? Yeah, when they got back, they were driving back from New York to all start their jobs, and they were sideswiped. Oh no. They didn't know anything really had happened, but somebody had been sleeping with their head next to the side of the car, and they had been killed. Dad said, I said I'd bring all the boys back to the parents. I couldn't. He put away his violin, and he basically never played again. Wow. I know. He, he a lot of guilt there. Yes, he really did. It, uh, once he moved to Sioux City, Iowa, where I was born and grew up, they wanted him to play in the orchestra there, and he never did. But he put it out once in a while, right, in family gatherings? Show the kids, you mentioned that. Only because to take after our father, my sister and I both tried playing the violin. Mm -hmm. How did that work out? We must have caused him a lot of ear pain. That is the best <laughs> way. When we were younger, my sister tried to pick up the violin. Uh, it took her a while. <laughs> I played it for three years and could never tune it. Oh, no. <laughs> no, oh. It, it was not, I'm sure, a happy experience. For He was proud that we wanted to follow in his footsteps. We first got the little junior violin and then moved to the big one. But... No, we never learned how to play the violin. So what did he do since he put down the violin? He was an attorney. Is yeah. it a specific field? Started out as a criminal attorney. Oh, cool. He was a prosecutor. No, defense, defense, oh, defense. Oh, defense attorney. Always uh, said he would rather get one guilty person off than send one guilty person to jail, or innocent person to jail. He, that was not in his makeup. Wow. That must have been intense. 
Well, he got into criminal law because Sioux City was a really wide open town when he started practicing law there. Both the Kansas City and the Chicago mobs used to do their R&R in Sioux City. Oh, that's interesting. It had a huge red light district. There were, I think, if I remember correctly, he said when he first went out on his own, because he originally was with somebody else, he got something like five to ten first-degree murder cases a year. Wow. I mean... Yeah. People now look at little sleepy Sioux City, Iowa, and they go, yeah. But in the 20s, 30s, yeah, in 40s. A in the Depression era, that's what people did. They were in mobs. They, they would rob up banks. They would uh, definitely, I believe it. And then, and then the Prohibition era was around oh, that yes, time. This so, was all during that time. And your father was out there, you know, trying to, you know, the best case he can to get these guys away from jail. <laughs> so and he he was good. He got more work. Yeah. Although he did have, and it had nothing to do with the mobs. He had one case written up in True Detective magazine. He proved that a man who found his wife in a motel room after she had been with another man, the other man had left, that he did not strike her in the head on purpose and kill her. That she must have been bending over, putting her shoes on, when he pushed open the door with such force <laughs> that it bashed in her head. And he got away with it. And he got her him off. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, amazing. But it happened that way. Yeah, so it was a manslaughter charge instead of a murder charge. Involuntary yeah. manslaughter. Yeah. And then, of course, they couldn't give him any jail time because if they did, his children wouldn't have anyone to look after them. Must have been a sturdy door, though. Wow, <laughs> amazing. How about your mother? What, what did your mother do? while all this was happening? Oh, my mother, who's a housewife, like women were back there, busy in school affairs, homeroom mother. What, were you ho homeschooled? No, homeroom oh, mother. Homeroom home mother. Oh, parents, parents back then, they had a homeroom mother who made sure that Cakes and cookies were brought for the right. It's back when we could have cakes and cookies brought to school. We didn't worry about peanut allergies. <laughs> Parents were involved. You know, although Sioux City was small, we could walk to school, grade school, junior high. But the downtown was two miles away. We had to be driven. Mm. to our lessons, to ballet, to whatever. Back then, girls didn't do many sports. How many siblings did you have? Brother and sister. Were you in the middle? I was in the middle. You were in the middle. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also in the middle. 
forgotten child, aren't you? I feel, I feel a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Like the first one's always the coveted one, yeah, right. And the baby one's always the coveted one because yeah. it's the baby. And especially because this was the only boy. Oh yeah. <laughs> so you, you had an older sister. Older sister. Not only the only boy in our family. The only boy of all my father's brothers. Wow, that so that's quite something to carry on your shoulders. He was going to be the only one to carry on the family name. He must have been very well taken care of. And he only had girls. Oh. <laughs> the name dies with him. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what, do, what do your siblings do? My... My sister, I'm not sure you could how to say what she does. My sister raises llamas, rides horses. She's a rancher of some kind. She lives in England. Oh, okay. So they're called farmers. Farmers, <laughs> of course. Yep. <laughs> that, the, the llamas give them the farm thing. And they got the llamas from Peru? Like they, they transported from Peru to England? Oh, they're all over the place. She bought some in I want to say I don't know where all she bought llamas. And she breeds them. And she held the first llama rama in England where people came and they had llamas pulling little carts and they, like you do at a dog show, people ran with their llamas and yeah. showed them off. I have no, she started the cottage industry of weaving llama wool hmm. in, again, she, in England. She's a big name in the llama industry, huh? It, she was, I don't know, she's still probably. And it all started out almost, well, they started when they bought the farm. Horses don't count to give you the farm discount on taxes, farm breaks. Right. So they got what are called Drexel cows. They're little, almost miniature cows. They didn't like doing that. And for her birthday or something, as a joke, her husband bought her two llamas. <laughs> That's quite a joke. <laughs> joke was on him yeah. when she had so many llamas that they had to rent fields from their friends because they couldn't keep them all because she kept falling in love with the llamas and wouldn't sell any. Oh, my God. Her husband <laughs> must have regretted that. Very much so, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, how about your and brother? My brother right now has a very interesting job. He is COO of a company out of Canada that is opening medical marijuana distribution and manufacturing facilities here in the United States. Wow, perfect timing now that all that stuff is being legalized. Yeah, that's, yeah, because it was legal in Canada. 
Right. So they're moving into the United States now. And that's what my brothers do. <laughs> that's a you seem to have a very interesting family background. It seems like it's in your lineage to have these very uh, ludicrous uh, uh, careers, you know, <laughs> defense attorney for, for the mobs, and then you got the llama farmer and the dispensaries, and, and then you, you've been all over the place, you've been traveling. So you having such worldly experience and such in general life experience, where and why did you resort to comedy at one point in your life? What better thing to do than comedy? I, after I got laid off, no, it was while I was still at Bank of America. Can I get a I time frame? Like a year or so? A, d a decade? I was about 60, I was about 60. So, 14 years ago, 15. 14 years ago, wow, okay. Well, I've got to think about this a minute. Okay, when I was 48, I took up amateur competitive bodybuilding. I know, that's What's the story another there? one what? that makes people stuff. I went to a trainer for fitness like an over 40 woman does. Uh -huh. And he kept saying, oh, you built such good muscles. Have you ever thought about bodybuilding? Oh, yeah. And after a couple of years of that, I said, okay, I think I'll give bodybuilding a try. How was that? I had a ball. It was horrible, and I had a ball. It's a good combination of great and bad. Yeah. <laughs> I Even as a kid, I loved lifting weights. I used to sneak into the gym at the community center where only adults and men were allowed, really, and lift weights. So when I actually started going to a gym and had a trainer and learned how to really lift them, it is something, as I said, that I just loved. Now, the downside is I was 48, muscles build faster than tendons and ligaments. Mm -hmm. I went from decent condition to my first competition in 11 months, which was too fast. I kind of messed up a few joints and things. The diet is horrible, and it's bad for the body. Oh, my God, yeah. But being on that stage at 48 years of age in the skimpiest thing I have ever worn in my life, totally oiled down right. and showing off my muscles, was a high like you wouldn't believe. How did your family take it? Uh, they thought I was crazy, I'm sure. My husband, when I, we were just, uh, well, we weren't even engaged at the time. When I, I told him I was thinking about doing it, we were talking about it. His comment basically was, I'm not sure why you want to do it, but if you're going to do it, 
be as good as you can be. Wow. What a man. Super supportive. Yep. And he probably lived to regret those words <laughs> when I was on what he called my bitch diet. Yeah, you get cranky. Your mood changes when you restrict food from your body for so long. Oh, yeah. Especially starting 12 weeks before the first competition. I had been able to have like minimal salt up until then. I was able to have my Diet Cokes. Then at 12 weeks, no salt at all. That means no tomatoes, no celery. Wow. So I couldn't have salsa because they have too much natural salt. No fats. It's like, no, 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 no. I started drinking distilled water. I ate poached chicken breasts, poached calamari, poached, you name it, <laughs> poached in water. Yeah. So, and rice and turkey burger. <laughs> hey, but the minute you're on stage, it's like, yes, it yeah. was worth it. And then, as soon as the end of the competition, every competitor goes, <laughs> and starts Just binge yeah. Oh, yes. So I did four competitions, and then I got laid off, opened the travel agency. I didn't have time anymore because I was working out six weeks before competition. I work out twice a day, six days a week. So now I still work out, not quite that hard. <laughs> anyway, I learned I like being on the stage. I liked, so I went into acting for a while. Did some community theater. I was okay. And by this time, were you here in the West Coast? Yeah. Oh, I was in the same house I'm in. Mm. And somehow from the acting, at some point, I kept thinking, I'd really like to try comedy. And I did. And once I started really doing comedy and getting decent at it, there's nothing else I wanted to do. So it keeps me busy in my, quote, retirement. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, fabulous me. I just got my first week of featuring in Las Vegas. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Where are you featuring at? It's the comedy club in the Stratosphere Casino called the LA Comedy Club. Wow, congrats. Wow, look at that. I know. 14 years in the game. Probably closer, more like between 11 and 12. 11 and 12. Yeah. Got it. Congrats. 
Yeah. Excited about that Vegas. You've been, yeah. I'm sure, right? I've been to Vegas. I've done guest spots. I've done competitions there. But this is going to be my first real booking in Vegas. Yeah. So uh, you came from a theater background, which I'm sure helped you a lot when you first started out doing comedy. Uh, but well, do you feel a difference in approach when you first do, did stand-up to where you approach it now? Yes. And I can't even exactly tell you what it is. But they say it takes three to five years or more to find your voice on stage. Mm -hmm. No, five to ten. Well, it takes five years to know if you're even funny. And it takes about um, ten years to know if you get your voice. The big thing is learning how to write jokes. There is a fabulous comedy teacher, Jerry Corley, out of Los Angeles. I've seen his lectures when I was at the World Series of Comedy in Las Vegas. And he says that Seinfeld, when he's doing new material, he basically gets up there and almost the scattergun approach, figuring about 30, 40% is gonna work. Carlin was the opposite. When he tried out something new, he was sure over 90% of the time that it would work. Because Seinfeld is more a talker, observation, well, Carlin was observational too, just different. But he studied and used the laugh triggers and knew how to use them well. In fact, I think Carlin was one of the funniest people ever. Definitely was your comedy inspiration. I can't say he was my inspiration. But I sure did like his comedy. Yeah. Well, who were some of your comedy inspirations? Like comedians you look up to at the time you first started out. I like the old time comedians that really tell jokes. Oh, yes. Yeah. And. Back in those jazz clubs, right? Yeah. I, th I think Joan Rivers was fabulous. Oh, amazing, yes. Cloris Leachman. These were people that knew what was funny and how to write a joke. I, I don't really like it when people just ramble. Mm -hmm. But that's what, but that's how my comedy is too. I write shorter. I won't say one-liners because there are one-liner comics that everything is not more than two sentences that takes a lot of work yes I do a few longer stories but I do subscribe and actually it's Albert Lee here I've also done the San Francisco Comedy College 
but Albert Lee that has really got me to write good, concise, tight bits, even my longer bits, everything I shoot for laugh every 15 to 20 seconds. And that's the kind of material I like. That's an interesting approach because um, there's two um, school of thought in comedy, at least for people starting out. There's the, the type that are going to just hit the open mics and see what they can do with that. And it's like you mentioned the, 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 the way Seinfeld does it, where they think of a concept, they're going to just talk about it on stage and hopefully get some laughs there's the other school of thought in comedy is like I should probably go take a class and and learn the structure of it and and both have the respectful people coming out of that but is that something you recommend to all comedians is to off the bat take some some courses in, in, in comedy whether they take courses or buy books it doesn't matter Yes, they should learn what makes people laugh and what's funny. And people like Butch Escobar, Joe Gorman, Mean Dave here locally. New comics hear them and think, oh, they're just talking off the top of their head because that's how good they are at making you think they are just thinking of it but all three of those write material and can repeat the same thing over and over and over and that's where new comics often make a mistake they hear people like that and those people do come to the open mics to test out new material or go over old stuff they haven't done in a while. And they think, oh, that just happened to them two minutes ago. And they're talking about it. I can get up and do the same thing. But you're talking about three comics that know what they're doing and have really written their material as opposed to just getting up and talking. And I am sure that Seinfeld also writes his material. I don't know for sure, but well, I'm sure that he does. Yeah, he in a couple of interviews, he mentioned that he writes everything down. Yes, uh, because you have to. You cannot, once you get into, well, first off, there is nothing I hate worse than to hear a comic say, that's all the, that I've written, but I've got three more minutes. I guess I'll talk about something. <laughs> no. If get off the stage. <laughs> yeah. And wait until you write your next three minutes. San Francisco Comedy College. There are times I wanted to kill Curtis Matthews. But he gives good advice. He really does. He says, and one th another thing new comics do wrong is they 
And they try to put so many things in and feel they have to say everything they thought they were going to say that night. And Curtis used to say, if you've got a seven-minute set and you tell one joke and people laugh for six and a half minutes, you've done your job. Get off the stage. <laughs> now, I've never had a six and a half minute laugh, don't you? But he's right. Newer comics, they need to learn someplace. And by watching other open micers, it's like, did you ever play... Oh, rugby. Rugby. Yeah. I've played football, but I've not played rugby. No. I'm familiar with it, though. Okay. What's a sport that you have... Ah, Australian football. Uh, is that rugby? No. Okay. Australian football is not American football. It is not rugby. It is not. It's a totally different ball That's game. interesting. I, I didn't know they had a league of their own. Yeah. Okay. That, we can talk about that. But let's assume then that you and I decided, okay, we're going to go out and learn Australian football. So we go to this playing field and we get a bunch of other people who only have vaguely seen or heard of Australian football. And we say, okay, now we're going to teach each other how to play. Mm -hmm. That's what happens when people go to open mics. They may be listening to other people who also have no clue what they're doing with comedy. And they're they're learning from them. You can't do that. Now, as I said, you can learn it from a book. If you are a book type reader, there's a lot of books out there about it too. You don't necessarily have to take a class, but you need to learn it somewhere besides just saying. Comedy's almost the only thing that people go, I think I'll give comedy a try. I'm going to go to an open mic tonight. <laughs> my friends say I'm funny. You know, nobody ever says, my friends say I give good advice. I think I'm going to try to be a psychiatrist. Let me get a client in here and see how <laughs> it works. <laughs> That's an interesting analogy. Yeah. Let's go back to where you started. What was the first stand-up comedy performance you've put on? I think it was at a small little place in Concord, and I can't remember, it's not there anymore. I tried it, I wasn't that good. Oh. Then I did this thing in San Francisco because my material wasn't that good. What kind of material were you, were you dealing with at the time? I think I was doing a story type. 
but I tried it sporadically for about two or three years before I went to the comedy college. The comedy college, uh, I don't know. Like for me, I have a bit of quarrels about that. I think it's a great thing. Uh, just like anything out the creative, you need to learn the basic principles before you go on your own. Uh, just the only real concern I have is is if you're told this is how this is what's funny. This is what people are gonna laugh at. I feel in some sense, not a high percentage of it, but some percentage, uh, a, a bit of authenticity and originality gets lost a bit. No. Don't think so? Not at all. I think the only mistake people make going to the comedy college, and I think I did it, is staying too long. Or only going to the comedy college's open mics. Back when I went is when they had the two showrooms of their own. So I didn't go out enough to try my material outside of my comfort zone. But especially the intro to comedy class and taking then one advanced class. The intro teaches basic comedy structure and there is a structure to it it I don't believe and this is why I said this Jerry Corley's material it's very good he talks about the 12 laughter triggers so there's more than just surprise there are many other things that make people laugh Although surprise is almost built into everything. But it's what brings on that surprise that makes it important. For a person to learn that, to learn writing techniques, what do you do when you go blank? How do you do something. These are all things that every... You said you're a writer. Yes. Well, Look at the books you have read. Why do you read other books? To uh, to learn from them, really. To okay. See. Yeah. I see your point, yes. So comedy's the same thing. But I think there's... The difference is that I'm reading these books on my own time as opposed to me taking classes in writing and learning from an institution how to write. Oh, but many people have started out and have degrees in literature or English or writing, ad copy. You know, it depends what you want to write. And yes, you can get it from books, and that's what I said. So not everybody needs to take a class. And if you do, don't say it too long. Right. And if you do, don't stay too long. How long is too long? Definitely three years or more is too long. Because <laughs> at, <laughs> at that point, I guess you're, you're in some ways preaching to the choir, right? You need to get new, fresh ears. Right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. And tell me about that. Once you start doing comedy outside your comfort zone, you, I guess you were a lot more prepared now at the time. Oh, now I am. Yeah, yes. now. But I mean, like, when you when you start venturing outside of the uh, comedy college uh, venues. I would do the same things. I had a lot of bad habits. One comedian kept telling me, well, it's fact. Curtis did too. Quit laughing. Quit laughing. Oh, were you laughing while performing? Yes. <laughs> and I became much more smiling, but not laughing. Unless something really funny happened. You know, like what recently. I'm talking, talking, talking. This happened to be at a private uh, party. And somehow I gave the punchline to a joke and had never done the setup for it. Oh, you went straight for the punchline. <laughs> I went straight to punchline. And, and then my ear heard what I said. And I just stopped and I said, that would have been a lot funnier if I would have told you what I was talking about. And of course, I started laughing. They laughed because it was an in the moment, just ridiculous thing. And those things happen. But learning how to handle that type of thing comes with experience. Yes. So when they say practice, 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 some people are good after a year. They're not as good as they're going to get, but are relatively good comedians. I was, I was okay, but it took me a good six years to really come out and own the stage. I hate seeing comics who pace. Now, part of that comes from the theater background. Yeah. Move it's with a, purpose. So about blocking. Yes. Yes. Plant your feet. And I saw one comic that they would start a joke here and finish it here. And start it here and finish it here. And their head was just going, no, you tell a whole joke here then maybe here, then maybe to your left. But as you said, it's all about blocking. So there are a lot of things I like to see on the stage. I think because there were some famous comics, and in fact, Seinfeld is one, who just kind of stood behind the mic and was rather monosyllabic, just blah, 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 blah. That a lot of comics get into that, and it becomes boring. Mm, static. Yeah. Yes. So there is a comedy instructor here, and I don't know if he still does. He taught a lot of those comics. and. 
a lot of the ones that became famous. But I knew when I took like uh, an intro thing from him and he said, just stand behind the mic, talk into it, don't move your hands, that this wasn't going to be me. <laughs> I am a hand gesture right. talker. I'm the same way. With, yeah. yeah. When I do stand up, it's the same way for me. Yeah. It's so I knew that we would not be a good match. And for a long time, you could tell anybody he trained because they just stood behind the mic very blah, blah, blah. And it was like, no. Well, yeah, and that's another uh, school of thought in, in, in comedy as well is do you let your performance do the work or do you let your writing do the work? In that sense, I assume he approached it, your, your, your writing and your material should do the work. There's some comedians that, apart from writing their material, they also want to make a performance out of it. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, but who are you thinking of? I want to see if I can... Uh, like some famous ones, uh, probably Dane Cook. He's all over the stage, oh. making these huge okay. movements. Then you got prop comics who bring props with them upstage, whoever that may be. Okay, uh, I... If you want to be a prop comic, that's fine. I'm not a fan of being a prop uh, comic. I've, or I, another one, he brings one thing up and uses it as a train whistle, which is very funny. But it's just like this one bit calls for it, what he's doing. But no, I think I'm with you. The material has to be funny in and of its own right. But then delivery is almost still 50%. And I'm trying to think who it was I was talking to, local, Johnny Steele, I believe, was talking about one bit that he always did, that always got a big laugh and stopped. And this is why we should always record all of our sets or tape them. And it, then it just wasn't working, wasn't working. And he looked back at an old video and there was a gesture he used to make that he stopped making. He put the gesture back, and it started working again. It's in the small details. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. So do you have a, a philosophical approach to comedy and the way it relates to your life? I'm not sure I understand that question. Yeah, after I said that, I was like, I don't think I understand it either. What <laughs> uh, I'm asking for, now that you do comedy, is there a way that you become more observant in your life? Are you making more of uh, an effort to bring materials from your life in comedy? Almost all of my comedy is about my life. I do basically no political humor. No? Never ever? Mm -mm. Never have done any political humor. I...
I'm trying to, like when I travel or do things, I see something that strikes me, I will write it down. I'm not always good at then turning it into a joke. And I don't write as much as I should. But one of the good things about doing comedy about yourself is nobody can steal your material. Yeah, that's true. And I have, I've seen and heard of comics doing that, stealing other people's material. Yeah. Oh, that's that's. I'm always embarrassed for that guy. I was like, why is he doing it? Why? I know. But some name comics, and some of them don't do it on purpose. And I think it's one of the reasons I sometimes don't listen to many comedians, the big names. Because I may be working on a premise and they've got a bit about it and I don't want to accidentally take anything from them. I opened for Will Durst about a year ago and we've talked about I've traveled a lot. I have always said I would like to do something about the self-flushing toilets and the hand-washing things where you can't find where you put your hands <laughs> right. to get the water to come out. The sensors are always a little wonky. Yeah. Well, he did a bit about that. And old-fashioned, when there used to be towels, you had a pull. And I I can never write a joke about that now. Oh. First off, his was too perfect. Yeah. And that panic. I get panic when I, when I hear a big name, at least a glimpse of the concept I'm working on. I was like, oh, my God, I'm the worst. What have I done? <laughs> well, and if it was something that was just, you know, a cute one-liner or so, or something I had been doing previously. But as it said, he wrote the perfect bit as far as I am concerned. I could never top that and I couldn't make it different enough to make it my own. So goodbye. Yeah, I would never do it now. Now with all this experience, how do you deal with hecklers? How do I do a what? Hecklers. You're never heckled? Nobody ever heckled you? Nobody ever interrupted oh, hecklers. you? Hecklers. Yes. Hecklers. Excuse my accent. Or what accent? No, it's my hearing. Oh. <laughs> you, everyone has to remember, as I'm fond of saying, you know you're supposed to use protection, but I had a lot of unprotected listening, and now I need hearing aids. <laughs> anyway, for whatever reason, I have had almost no hecklers. Really? Why do you think that is? I think because I'm old and they're afraid that I might die on stage. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to give this lady a heart attack. Yeah. I'll let her say her say. Now, also, if anybody... Now, they may be in the back of the room heckling me, but I can't hear them. That's an advantage. <laughs> there you go. That's a great advantage to have. One, 
You know, you can't hear very well from the back. That's good. You just continue on, plow on through. Now, the problem is it also means I can't riff with the audience very oh. much. Do you stay away from crowd work? I do a little bit, but very little. Because if not, a lot of times it's a lot of, what'd you say? Can you repeat that? Can you speak up louder? <laughs> so it's not worth it. Now, if it's somebody that's close, that I already that speaks loud because I know because they're talking loud uh, I will do a little bit or in some of my bits like when I say it's hard to find a young hard bodied man to kiss me I will usually pick out a young guy you know and yeah. speak directly to him or something uh-huh. But that's the type of crowd work I do only. Fascinating. Do you? Do you? I, I I'm nervous. I'm insecure about my crowd work, but I, I once in a while I try it out. Yeah. Uh a big advantage I have is that I'm hosting a comedy open mic, so sometimes I have to do crowd work to really get the energy going in the room. Uh but it's good practice, but for the most part I, I shy away from it, you know. because uh, <laughs> A lot. Of, I found myself where the person I've chosen to do crowd work is actually funnier than me, and I'm like, oh my god, it's the worst choice I've ever done in my life. <laughs> well, now, see, th right there is what your answer can be when they end up being that. Yeah. Like, you know, why did I choose on you? Yeah. See, I know these things, but again, it does take practice, and there yeah. are some people, Kasim Bentley, Mm -hmm. who are just fabulous with it. Thank you. Uh, Joe Closet are, are two that come to mind to me that are two of the best crowd workers in the area. And I'm not sure, the only time it's really necessary is when you have a crowd and you want to get them right with, with you right yeah yes makes sense and then so I suppose like anything else should practice which means I should too thank you very much <laughs> all right Sandra we hit the one hour mark you start closing down okay. so I got two questions left and one's gonna be a random question and the other question will be the last question. This random question, humor me, uh, is just different topics out of the blue. Uh, but since I'm on this theme for this month for some reason, how do you deal with heartbreak? With heartbreak? Yes. I guess it depends on what kind of heartbreak you're talking about. If you're talking heartbreak because one of my beloved pets has died, I cry and carry on for about a week mm -hmm. and then I find another pet <laughs> because there's nothing that makes you feel better than to have a cat or a dog and How many pets do you have? It. I only have one cat now. Okay. Only one cat. 
Now, if you're talking about loss of uh, dating, heartbreak, yeah, the guy broke my heart. I'd carry on for about a week and then I'd go out and find another guy. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that works. Or move to another city and start all over. Wow, really? Have you done such a thing? Did you had to move to a whole different city? No, I didn't move because of them. But somehow it used to work out very well that in the type of data processing I did, because it was with the airlines, to get promoted, you had to go to another airline. Mm -hmm. So I used to time my job searches to bribe breakups. Oh, there you go. Oh, I broke it up with Johnny. I guess I better get promoted somewhere else. Start looking for another job. Start looking for another city, another job. That's that must have helped you a lot. That that makes perfect sense. Different scene, different yeah. people to deal with. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And last question before we go. Uh, we you you touch on it on it quite a bit actually, so it might be a redundant uh, question, but I'm still curious if you could add on to it. A new person starting out in comedy approaches you and ask for tips or help, what would you say to them? I am known even for my unsolicited advice to new comics. If you take the mic out of the stand, put it behind you, the microphone stand, don't let it keep blocking you. Uh Tape either on a tape recording or video, every single set you do, and look at it. Learn the difference between a premise and a punchline. That's an important one. And edit, edit, edit. Cut out unnecessary words. Sandra. Thank you for coming. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me.